Hey, deserving listeners. I recently responded in an episode to an email in which someone wanted to date their therapist. She said that she she had a a large uh, romantic and sexual attraction to her therapist, and she wanted to date her therapist. And she had heard my other talks on the podcast about this, warning against that, and also talking to clinicians out there about how to handle situations in which the client is attracted to you and how to have boundaries and how to act ethically and how to predict problems that usually happen when therapists and clients uh, break those boundaries. And although I've had many episodes about this topic, I find that a lot of the listeners or a subset of the listeners, whenever I talk about it, I get a lot of emails. And so, and this one was no exception, or maybe it was the greatest amount of emails I received after talking about it. I received a lot of emails from people writing in saying that they had experienced blurred boundaries with their therapist to varying results. Some people were talking about how they were harmed by the massive blurry blurry boundary issues with their therapist. And some people said that it wasn't a problem. And so I thought in this episode, I would read all of those emails that I received the past couple days and talk about them, analyze them and comment on them as a way for both therapists and clients to understand the landscape of boundaries. Because it, it, whenever we talk about boundaries, meaning, you know, should you date your therapist or should your therapist tell you about their divorce that they're going through? Or what if the therapist talks about their own children? Or what if the therapist meets you at a restaurant instead of an off, instead of their, you know, therapy office? Or what about a therapist that allows the sessions to go longer than normal? Or what about a therapist that, uh, that texts with you on the weekends? Uh, and that's not you know described in the in the treatment plan. Uh, these are all the the blurry boundaries and boundary violations, boundary crossings that we talk about a lot. And I think that there are there are three different positions that I hear. One position is people will say like it's always unethical to blur your boundaries, which is actually not true. The other group of people will say is is uh, well they won't say anything, but they'll act as if boundaries don't matter and that they can break any boundaries they want. And some of the people emailing in that I'll talk about were like that. Some of the therapists obviously had no knowledge or at least no acknowledgement of the need to have boundaries. And then there's this, there's this third position that is the one that I uh, admire and adhere to, which is that boundaries and any in the broader context of ethical decision making it's nuanced and it's complicated and it doesn't mean that uh we have complete flexibility that's not the point the point is is that it, it's important for us to understand the foundation upon which to make ethical decisions It's not necessarily a set of rules. It's a set of understandings that guide your decisions that are generally considered to be the standard of practice. And so uh, knowing that foundation, which is much more complicated, you know, whenever you take an ethics class, or at least when I started out in the field, I always wanted to just be told what to do. I was just like, okay, 
masters of ethics, just as a, you know, I'm trying to be a therapist here. I'm trying to follow the rules. I want to follow the rules. Just tell me what to do. And a lot of times, aside from some very, uh, you know, obvious things like never have sex with your client, there are things where it it's unclear and it depends on the situation. And the only way you can, as a clinician, understand how to navigate those situations is one, to understand the principles very well, which is which takes a long time. And two, is to hear case after case after case after case after case, because each case is different. And as you hear the case, and then you hear experts talk about how they see the case, you start to internalize this general ethics wisdom that will help guide you in your life. And so to that effort, I thought I would read these cases and and discuss them. So this first email is from an anonymous patron. She writes, and this is a long one, but I think it's, it's a good email to read. She writes, I just finished listening to your most recent episode about dating a therapist and wanted to respond because I experienced a similar situation. I have always felt like such a freak because of it. It is one of my closest kept secrets. I have never been able to find any research on the topic. In my late teens, I had a therapist who was a psychiatric nurse. I adored her. She was, she was only supposed to be managing my medications, but because I was willing to talk to her, she ended up being my therapist too and saw me for an hour almost every day for two months. In my mind, she was the most perfect mother for me. I wanted... I wanted to be part of her family. Circumstances led me to not being able to see her at her place of work, so she offered to see me pro bono in her, in her office outside of the, the hospital. We texted throughout the day, every day, often about mundane things. I have since read a lot about trauma therapy and how it's supposed to work, and I don't think she had any training in it because she didn't follow that at all. Uh, talking so much, I became talking so much. I became really close with her and learned a lot about her life. She was going through a really messy divorce. She went through bankruptcy. Her daughter had Asperger's syndrome, and she was struggling a lot with becoming a single parent. She made a lot of comments about her daughter not loving her. I think that was really hard for her. Because of her bankruptcy, she lost the office space she was working out of, so we met instead at restaurants, libraries, and in her car. She met a man and quickly decided to move in with him when he bought a house. From then on, our sessions were at that house, but by that point, they didn't resemble therapy sessions at all. That is how I met her daughter. After living with her boyfriend for a couple of months, they broke up, and she moved out to a temporary subletting situation. She was still having a lot of financial trouble, and she found a better job on the other side of the country. We started having phone sessions, but then our relationship was a secret. But then our relationship was a secret. She suggested that I live with her daughter because she needed a roommate to save money, and it would make her feel better about both of us if we lived together. I agreed and thought all my dreams are finally coming true because I always wanted to become her daughter. She started referring to me as one of her kids and introduced me to her new boyfriend. She suggested that he, her daughter, and I could support one, one another while living where we were and then, split moving, and then split moving costs when we finally moved to meet her across the country in a few months. She wanted him to be like a parent figure to me and... Uh, he, 
and he, he wanted her to be a parent figure to her daughter as well. After a while, I had a relationship with him. I think I probably started things, but I really didn't know how else to act with an adult man. I was so lonely. He felt like this tenuous connection to her, and I was worried that if, I didn't, if, I, if he didn't like me, she would stop loving me. I told her what was going on via text, and at first it was just like my mom all over again, calling me a disgusting liar. I sent her screenshots through the texts he had sent me, and she broke up with him as a result. She said I ruined her life, and that if she had known what I was really like, that she would never have agreed to work with me. I felt so ashamed, like I was to blame for all of it. I have read a lot since about why people repeat the same patterns over and over. I ended up alone in the same psych hospital I had met her in, but on the adult ward this time, admitted for being suicidal and underweight. The stress of it all caused a relapse in my PTSD and anorexia. I recently started seeing a therapist who specializes in complex PTSD, and I told him a little about the story, just a bit to see how he reacted, and he seemed to, to take it well. It's so humiliating. I have never been, I, I've never or even read, I've never met or even read about someone else in a similar situation. It's always about people in a sexual relationship with a therapist, but I never hear people write about a parent-child relationship with with a therapist. Have you ever read any research about this or know anyone else, know anyone else who that this has happened to? End of email. So, wow, right? A lot of details there that, to, to dive into. The first thing I want to say is that I created a Facebook closed group for people who have been harmed by their therapist because I get so many emails from people along these lines. I, I think it's a, a relatively rare event to be harmed by one's therapist, but I have, uh, for whatever reason, become a bit of a lightning rod for such things. And so uh, I, th- I think, and partially I think because there's, there's so little um, resources on the internet for it. And so anyway, I, I created this closed group for, and it's called th- uh, Clients Harmed by Therapy. And so if you go to our Facebook page or you just search for that, um, you can ask to join. And then if you look like you're a legit person, then, then we'll approve for you to join. Anyway, so, so let's review the clinician's treatment decisions with this anonymous patron here. So you have a teen client in a hospital who uh, is in a psychiatric ward. I'm get, she didn't say, but I'm guessing for suicidal ideation related to her depression and her anorexia. I'm guessing she went through a lot of abuse. She didn't talk about that. She's on medications. And her psychiatric nurse, who is the one giving her medications, uh, normal. I'm guessing the psychiatric nurse doesn't normally treat people uh, with psychotherapy. It's just a guess. Who knows? But at the very least, it was the impression to this anonymous, to this client, was that uh, the psychiatric nurse wasn't intending on being that sort of role for her, but upon meeting her and her med management uh, discussions, the psychiatric nurse was like, "Ooh, you know, I really am connecting with this client. I feel like I can really help this client, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna become this this uh, patient's uh, therapist as well." They proceed to have one hour sessions almost every day for two months. So that's interesting. Almost every day for two months. Now, 
the client seems to believe that the therapist had no training in trauma therapy. She didn't go into detail on that, but it doesn't surprise me. I would guess most, if you know, half to most therapists are undertrained on trauma therapy and they don't even know they're undertrained on trauma therapy. So, you know, anyway, um, when, when the client could no longer come to the facility, she was, tra- she transitioned her client to her private practice and saw her in her private practice office pro bono. They, at this point, and because they weren't seeing each other every day in the hospital, I'm guessing they started texting throughout the day. So that's many texts every day even about mundane things. The therapist at this point starts to self-disclose a lot. For example, she talks about her messy divorce, her bankruptcy, that her daughter has autism spectrum. Her daughter uh, wasn't loving her. her. Uh, she talked about her, def- de- her difficulties in detail with her, with her client, with her client who's, I don't know, 17, 18 years old. And her therapist also talked about her dating life at this point. The therapist loses her office, so the sessions are transitioned to restaurants, library, and the therapist's car. Um, actually, for some, just to clarify or discuss this little detail, is uh, it's not unusual to see clients in in unusual places. I used to do in home therapy and. That was challenging in terms of the thing is, is as a therapist, you have to provide ethical treatment and which has to be confidential, which means that if you're going to meet people outside of your office, you have to try to control the environment a little bit. And you you could potentially control a library if you rented one of those or reserved one of those little rooms. Um, but honestly, your car might be the best option because – it's going to be really hard for someone to eavesdrop on that, but people could see you. Um, restaurants, though, that's going to be hard to keep confidential. Um, but anyway, then she started having sessions at her boyfriend's house, the therapist's boyfriend's house. And at this point, the client is saying that therapy didn't resemble therapy sessions at all, which I don't know exactly what that means. I'm guessing what that means is. It was much more of like a mother-daughter hangout session as opposed to a therapy session. The therapist moved to another state, and so they started doing phone sessions. The therapist started referring to her own client as one of her own kids. The therapist introduced her client to her boyfriend and to her daughter and suggested that the three of them live together, which it appears that they did. The therapist exposed her to what seems to be some sort of sexual predator. I mean, the, the client, it was hard for me to, I didn't ask her for clarification, but it sounds like what happened is there was a sexual relationship between the client and the therapist's boyfriend while they were living together. And she can go into detail, the, 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 you know, the email or the listener is blaming herself for all of this. She's, you know, she's like, you know, I started it, it's my fault. And maybe that's true. I don't know. But, it, you know, you're, you're young at this point. You're 18, 19 years old. I'm, I'm guessing there's quite a bit of an age gap. Uh, your therapist should understand that you are a vulnerable person to certain kinds of uh, relationships. And as you say, it wasn't like the relationship started out of some sort of nefarious uh, motivation from you. 
it was a pattern of yours, probably derived from abuse that you went through, that your therapist should absolutely understand. And you were so anxious about retaining the relationship with this pseudo-mother that you had some wires, wires crossed in your head and you're thinking, well, if, if I'm really, really nice and pleasing and I turn off myself in relation to this boyfriend, then that'll secure my security and attachment with my mother figure. And then that led you to being open to doing things with him that you wouldn't have done otherwise or, you know, and didn't want to do. So you seem to be blaming yourself a lot over what had happened there. Uh, I don't obviously know the details, but just based on the little details I do know, I suspect if I understood the full story, uh, I would not uh, blame you for what happened at all. Uh, At the very least, even if you were culpable, which I doubt, at the very least, your therapist should know what your vulnerabilities are, one, and two, your therapist chose some kind of scumbag, some kind of douchebag who who uh, had a relationship with a uh, – I mean, so let me just put this in – if I was in, the, in his shoes, okay? I'm a guy and I um, meet a woman. I start dating her and she says, I, I have this – client of mine who I I have sort of adopted uh, casually or unofficially as my own child, but I'm really trying to help her and trying to help her recover because I really care about her. And she now, I want her to move into your house with, with my, with my own daughter. And then, so let's, so I'm like, okay, I have this girlfriend who has this kind of like the stepdaughter who was 18 years old. I assume I'm old because I'm, but who knows, I'm at least, I don't know. Anyway, I, and then I'm going to look at essentially my stepdaughter as a romantic or a sexual target. I mean, that's a particular kind of person. And given the chaos of this woman's life, the therapist's life, I suspect that she's not the best chooser of mates. And again, a lot of speculation here. Um, anyway, so some sort of drama happens the, cl- the clinician at this point blames the client for, quote, ruining her life. And I, I'm assuming that the, re- the professional relationship was terminated, although one could argue the professional relationship terminated long, long ago. So, so that's a summary. Now let's review the consequences. To So there are a lot of boundary crossings and violations that the clinician went to. But before we get into discussing that more uh, in, de- in more detail, let's let's review the the consequences to the boundary crossings and violations. The therapist potentially could lose their license over this and income. It could also be sued uh, tremendously too. At at this point, it's unclear if she was even operating as a clinician at a cer- by a certain point. But anyway, um, absolutely, just based on the details you said. There is basis for a licensing review by the state that uh, administers her license. And if she loses her license, then she can't practice and she can't earn a living and she'll be even in more financial trouble. She Again, you could also sue her civilly and actually just take money from her, uh, which I think you deserve. Um, so that's one consequence of, of – 
of in a very um, ill-advised decision-making process, this therapist decided to cross all the boundaries. Another consequence here is the client feels tremendous shame. Uh, this this person, this anonymous patron writing in, hasn't told anyone or very hasn't you know has only told very few people. The client is the victim here, and the client feels like she can't tell anybody, and the client blames herself for this. So, good job, clinician, for doing that to this innocent person. The client is traumatized by the treatment and by the clinician's boyfriend and by the boundary violations. Uh, the cl- so that so, good job, clinician. You have successfully traumatized your own client in a number of ways. The client's trust in therapy in general is threatened at this point. You know, I, I commend the client here for seeking another therapist. It would have been a understandable conclusion to say that why would I go to therapy if this is how I'm going to be treated? The client's PTSD reemerged, so good job clinician, and the client's anorexia reemerged which is life-threatening, so good job, clinician. All right, so let's get into the discussion here. So many problems. I've already discussed some. But before I go into the problems, I want to be clear about something. A lot of these boundary crossings, so there's boundary crossings, which are more gray zone areas, like accepting a $5 gift card from a client. That's a boundary crossing. Or telling your client that your grandma died. That's a boundary crossing. But it's not a boundary violation. So you got boundary crossings, which are more gray zone, which could be unethical and could be a problem, but it's not clear. And then you have boundary violations that are more uh, generally often a problem, meaning that they would harm the client and harm the treatment. So examples of boundary crossings that the or just gray zone areas or even just flat out no problem areas, are the following. Having daily sessions. Now, some of you out there might be like, whoa, an hour of therapy every day with this client? That sounds like a massive boundary violation. Uh, It's not. One, you can go into detail in terms of her email, but it sounds like they were in a hospital. And so that's often standard practice is uh, daily check-ins with your therapist. It might not be every day, but if you wanted to, I mean, you're the psychiatric nurse, you're, you're in the psych ward and it just means you just hang, you know, you just have a session with your patient who's at, in inpatient and they're 24 seven. So daily sessions uh, isn't a problem. Plus there are some forms of therapy where um, that's what you want to do. Like I said earlier, I used to do in-home family therapy and with some of my clients, I would go there um you know, several times a week, if not every day, if they were in crisis. So daily sessions, it's, it's not a problem. Um, we saw what her, her the, the general lax attitude to boundaries that this clinician had, we saw where it led. But if we just look at the individual things, also pro bono, you know, providing a free service to clients is also not a problem. In fact, it's considered ethical practice to do that. In fact, in my field, marriage and family therapy, it could be potentially considered unethical for you not to, once you're more you know, financially stable, to provide pro bono services. You know, the, one of the problems in my field is that it's definitely, um, what do you call, it's, 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 a, it's for the rich. 
poor people have a much harder time accessing mental health care. If you're rich, you got therapists falling out of your pockets. Um, if you're poor, it's hard. Now, I should say that even if you're rich, sometimes it's hard to find the right therapist. But anyway, uh, another boundary crossing here is texting throughout the day. Some of you clinicians out there might be like, whoa, that's a boundary problem. And yeah, I don't do that. I don't text with my clients at all. You know, some of my, even my supervisees will te- text me sometimes and I'll be like, I don't like to text. Don't text me. Email me or call me or something. I just don't. There's something about texting is just annoying to me. <laughs> um, I like texting with my wife and my friends, but I don't, I just don't like texting with clients and supervisees. Um, so for me, I don't do that, but for some people they do. And, and some forms of therapy actually involve that. Like when you're doing DBT or when you're trying to help someone with their recovery from addiction, then sometimes the treatment plan actually calls for texting throughout the day. Um, now, the, treat, the texting has to be considered or the ethical reasons for it and how it's affecting treatment, how it's affecting client. You know, it's, it's not just like always okay, but, but it's, some of you might be going, well, it's a massive boundary problem. But, you know, it depends. Self-disclosure, the therapist was disclosing a lot to the client and on first, you know, to, to tell your client that you're going through a messy divorce, to tell your client that your daughter doesn't love you and that you're really sad about that. You know, these are not often the sorts of disclosures that therapists will tell their clients. So it's definitely out of the norm, but it's not a slam dunk violation because it just depends. It depends on the way the therapist said those things. It depends on, you know, did the therapist have a purpose in telling? Because you could tell your client some pretty personal things and have a good clinical justification for that. Like you could tell your client, um, you know what, right now I'm going through a messy divorce. So I know what it's like to have chaos in my life. And I know your life is very chaotic and I know that you shame yourself and feel really bad about yourself, but I'm here to tell you my life can be really chaotic and sometimes I think half of it is my fault that that this my life is chaotic. And so and it's not like I did this on purpose, so I want you client to understand that it's normal for people to have messy lives and and I don't want you to beat yourself up over it. So you understand in that self-disclosure, there's a reason why I'm self-disclosing that I'm going through a difficult time. It's because I'm trying to normalize it for the client. I'm, I'm trying to help the client feel less shame. And it can be a, a very, very effective way of helping to normalize and to reduce shame in clients to, to self-disclose. Because it's one thing to tell a client like, wow, you're really beating yourself up about this. I don't, I don't think that's fair to you. That, that holds some power. But it's so much more powerful when you can provide your own example. So I don't know what the therapist was thinking as they were self-disclosing all this. Given the overall pattern, I suspect the therapist wasn't thinking at all about the treatment implications and was uh, confusing her own client for her daughter. But even your daughter, right? Like your daughter's 17, 18 years old, is it I don't even know if it's appropriate or helpful or developmentally handleable for an 18-year-old to hear stuff like that. Like, uh, So it depends, but 
definitely sound, if we knew more details, it definitely sounds like a violation, but it's, but it's not a slam dunk violation like the other things I'm going to get into in a second. Also, having sessions in public places. For some of you, you might be like, whoa, massive uh, violation. Having a session in a restaurant is completely not okay. And again, for me, I don't do that. I, I've never had – occasionally I would work with – for, I don't know, 10 years of my life, about a third of my clients were these in-home families. And sometimes clients would be like, eh, I don't really want to meet in the house. How about we meet at Starbucks or something? And I'd be like, to me, it didn't really matter, right? Because, oh, I'm driving to their house and I'm driving to Starbucks. What's the difference to me? But I would always push back on that because of confidentiality and because I I couldn't guarantee that, you know, therapy can get kind of messy sometimes, right? People can start to cry. They can start to yell. They can feel very vulnerable. And to be in a public space uh, with randos walking around is not a – not an ideal space for that, right? That's the best space for that is your own office. Uh, another space for that would have been the client's home or their apartment. Um, a Starbucks isn't so great. In the car, again, as I said earlier, a little bit easier to control. In a library, if you found a good, if you found a, you know, a closed room that you could reserve, if you're just sitting behind the periodicals, then obviously that's, that's not a good thing. So again, it depends. The sessions in public places to some might be a massive automatic violation, but it's unclear. We'd have to hear more details about that. Uh, And then the sessions at her boyfriend's house. That could sound like a massive violation as well, but also not necessarily. Uh, One could frame it as the, the clinician had changed residences. And yeah, she moved into her boyfriend's house, but her boyfriend's house was essentially her house at this point because she was moving in. And it's not uh, an ethical violation to see people in your own house. You know, the clinician probably considered that her house at that point, even though it was a very new residence for her. And I'm guessing, I hope that she had a confidential space in that house to see her clients in. I operate out of my home. I always have. I've operated out of my home for the past 20 years and and I've never had any kind of problem or complaint about that. And there's, you know, there's things I have to do to make sure that I can uphold ethics. But so those are this is things that I want to say. I'm, I'm not going to say everything this clinician did was an automatic, obvious violation. They could be if we looked into more of the details. Um, but it's it's not a slam dunk. Um, so, but some of the things that are uh, more obvious, which I'll get into in here, here in a second. So. As we get into the violations of the boundaries, I just want to point out again that we, we see a clear pattern of breaking boundaries. This wasn't just one or two boundary crossings. It was a series of potentially thousands of incidents of boundary crossings and potential violations. And we also see what the pattern led to. You know, by the end of these pattern, by the end of these boundaries being crossed and violated, we have we have a situation where her client is now living in her home with her brand new boyfriend, whom she doesn't know very well, and her daughter, and her client is now in a relationship with you know some sort of sexual or romantic relationship with her boyfriend. Uh, you know. 
the clinician's boyfriend is in a relationship sexually with her own with her client. Therapy sessions are no longer really therapy sessions. She is now uh, keeping this relationship a secret. The emailer didn't go into detail, but I suspect that the clinician didn't want anyone to know about her relationship with her patient because she knew that if anyone knew about this relationship, she'd be in trouble. Um, We uh, have a situation where the clinician starts to blame the patient for everything wrong in her life. Uh, You know, there's just, we see what happened by the end, you know, and it's a, that's why we talk about the slippery slope. That's why we say, don't accept the $5 gift card from your client, not because that's a problem necessarily in and of itself, but it's potentially the slippery slope that you, if you don't nip it in the bud, you'll end up in a very bad spot. You can accept the $5 gift card from your client if you want, but you got to make sure that this doesn't become a pattern that grows and grows and grows. The other thing I want to point out here is that unethical therapists tend to be unethical in dozens of ways, and we see that with her. I hear this all the time. Whenever I hear cases like this, I just hear crossing after crossing after violation after violation. It just seems, you know, when you don't understand the basis of ethical decision-making and when you've lost your way, then you generally lose your way repeatedly. So that's another thing is that to watch out for. If you're allowing your treatment to cross boundaries, there might be something fundamentally wrong with you. What's fundamentally wrong with this clinician is that uh, she doesn't understand ethics. Her life is going down the tubes. This is actually a very familiar story. Um, it's a very familiar st- – this, uh, this has been known for decades that when therapists, when their life is going down the tubes, they are very vulnerable to breaking boundaries and acting unethically and harming their patients. It's just a classic story. So what we see here is we have a clinician who um, you know, just didn't understand what she was doing. Her life was going down the tubes, and she obviously wasn't consulting with anybody because if she had consulted – Surely someone would have said, whoa, 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 <laughs> what are you doing? Um, so the other thing we want to look at here is countertransference. Hard to know because it's just an account from what, you know, I, it, but I haven't talked to the clinician, obviously. But it sounds like the therapist had a massive amount of countertransference about wanting to have the daughter, the ideal daughter. And because this client was so loyal to her because you know the client came from abuse the client came from mistreatment so the client meets this woman that is like this caring loving secure seemingly safe person and the client pours all of her energy into the the nurse practitioner the nurse practitioner the clinician is like whoa i'm getting all these i'm getting all my needs met because i feel so useful and i can save this person and so these are, you know, good impulses. I want to help my client. I want to help this person. This person has been through a lot. I want to help them. This is what we call positive countertransference. The, the therapist has a lot of positive feelings. They, they feel very bonded to the patient. They feel very protective. They want to save this person. Uh, 
And the thing here is that without a way of understanding that, without a way of consulting about that, without a way of understanding and then managing those feelings, those can cause problems too. And we see that they did. Just because you have positive feelings for a client doesn't mean that something isn't wrong. Now, you should have positive regard, but there's a difference between positive regard, which is from a loving, warm, empathetic, professional place. There's a difference between that and wanting your patient to be your daughter. Now, if we went to the clinician years ago and said, do you want your patient to be your daughter? She would probably say, no, that's silly. My patient is my patient. I'm just really trying to help her because I, I want her to you know, have a secure attachment. And I, she's such a sweet person. I want to get her life back on track. So the clinician wouldn't know consciously that she was heading down a road. That's why we have consultations. That's why I consult with people. That's why people consult with me. Two plus heads are always better than one. In some ways, one head will inevitably fail. That's why it's incredibly important that all you clinicians out there have a routine around consulting. If you don't, it's guaranteed that you're going to make mistakes that you wouldn't have made otherwise. And things like this could happen. Uh, if, this, if this is an accurate account from the emailer, she should lose her license, in my opinion. I know her life is already going down the tubes, and by losing her license, that would be quite another blow, and she might even not be able to work for a living at that point. But she's, in, she's a dangerous person to her clients, clearly. This person clearly – I mean, so many different whys in the road, and every single time she chose the wrong direction. There are so many points where she could have pulled the reins and been like, whoa, whoa, like, no, I, I want to have my patient move in to my house with my new boyfriend, but that's got to be crossing a line somewhere. You know, there there's so many different whys on the road. Um, you know, I want to text with my client because I want to help her feel, you know, tethered to a secure base, but every day? about mundane things like I don't know if that's the best thing for her in the long run. Every single time this this clinician again if this is an accurate account from this emailer has just a fundamental something wrong with them. Often what I find and people will, you know, email me examples of this. Often what I find is that it's not just a clinician who was going through a rough time because a lot of clinicians go through rough times. A lot of clinicians go through divorces. A lot of clinicians start dating when they're seeing their clients. Um, you know, I'd say I don't know. Majority of of client of therapists go through pretty big life events, but most therapists operate uh, ethically, or at least way more ethically than this therapist did. So it's not just that her life was going out of tubes. What also had to be present in my estimation, my speculation, is that she had to have had something wrong with her personality, her own compl complicated PTSD, her own borderline personality spectrum, her own narcissism spectrum, something, her own insecure attachment. Something else was going on there. And when you combine life going down the tubes with a characterological disorder, then you have these kinds of things. Because when you have a personality disorder, 
you're so desperate for security and soothing that you're just trying to make it minute to minute. And and sometimes when you're doing that as a clinician, you don't got you don't got time to think about ethics and long term consequences. Um, and and again, I mentioned this earlier, but the clinician seems, from the details given to me, to be absolutely liable for what happened with her boyfriend and the patient. That to me, it, again, it's hard to know because she didn't go into detail, but. My God. I mean, just imagine if, like, my wife had a relationship with one of my clients because I encouraged the two of them to live together. Uh, and my and my patient was, you know, half her age. I, that would, I mean, I, I can't see any other way to put that other than that is 100% my fault. <laughs> like, I... I Everything I, I I was completely outside the standard of care, and obviously I didn't vet this you know person well enough in my personal life to to have contact with my patient, which they shouldn't have anyway. Anyway, it's just um, I I I've, I don't know if there's criminal charges or, but there's definitely civil uh, you know civil court um, remedies that could be sought. Um. The other thing here is that there probably is no progress notes beyond a certain point in the treatment. You know, whenever we have contact with our patients, we have to document it. So presumably every time the therapist texted with the client, every time the therapist um, talked with the patient while they were living together – all of those incidents need to be documented, not every word, not, but every contact. And I would presume that after a certain point, that clinician just stopped keeping notes. Because can you imagine, you know, like one of the notes would be, to, ad- to address the treatment plan of reducing depression, suicidality, and anorexia symptoms, I recommend the client move into my new boyfriend's house, whom I don't know that well. <laughs> like, that that's just not a progress note that I can imagine her writing. Uh, so that's another thing, emailer, that you can look into if you decide to pursue this is you can demand for your client file. You can just, at this point, even though she's blaming you for ruining her life, which is hysterical in my mind, you can just say, hey, I want my, I want my file. And there should be two files. There should be a file for the hospital. So that one will probably be intact and, and probably in order. But once she transitioned you to her own office, if I understand the professional situation correctly, she should have a file also. And so wouldn't it be interesting to read that file? Because I'm guessing – because like I said before, in my experience, when you have an unethical therapist, they tend to be unethical about a lot of things. And it's possible that your file is completely jumbled, uh, at the very least doesn't include a lot of contact with you. So it's just another thing to look into if you want. Um, I highly encourage that you consider taking action if you, you know, if you feel like you've been wronged, then I highly encourage you to uh, contact the, your state Department of Health and, and potentially even a, a civil lawyer. Uh, now, I'm not saying you're, you have to do that. You know, everyone has to make their own choice about that. It's a pain in the ass to do a complaint. It's not like the review board 
is always great in response to to patients. Um, but I don't know. You you deserve to uh, take action, and this clinician shouldn't be out there. In in my opinion, if, if your account is accurate. All right, so that is that email. I have, I don't know, three or four or five more emails. But I want to reserve the rest of this uh, episode for patrons of the podcast. This is the Psychology in Seattle podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Kirk Honda. I'm a therapist and a professor and someone who obsesses on ethics sometimes. This episode is just for patrons, the rest of this episode, just for patrons of the podcast. So if you want to listen to the rest of this episode and all of our other premium episodes, you have to become a patron of the podcast by going to patreon.com. Go to, go to patreon.com, search for Psychology in Seattle, become a patron, and you'll get instructions on how to access all of our premium episodes. If you have trouble with the premium episodes, please email contact at psychologyinseattle.com, and I will personally help you with it. Um, uh, for those of you that don't know, the uh, software developers of the world have failed to develop a usable system for people to access premium episodes. If I could pay $10,000 for an app that would work well, I would do it, but it just doesn't exist. It will exist soon. Uh, there are some promising products that I'm researching currently that might work, but uh, we'll see. So I apologize for sometimes it being hard to access the premium episodes. It's particularly hard for those of you who have trouble with technology to begin with. A lot of you young people who are really good with technology, you have no problem with it. So um, so we're doing what we can. Anyway, so yeah, become a patron of the podcast by going to patreon.com. Do it. Do it now. All right. Welcome to the Patron Zone patrons. Love you so much for being a patron. This next email is from an anonymous patron. She writes, your episode on dating your therapist was so, so, so validating. My ex-therapist and I didn't actually date, but he violated a lot of boundaries. He extended our sessions beyond the hour. We frequently texted and emailed with each other. We even went to dinner. In the episode, you said, how are you going to justify to your clients when you have to pull back? That was so affirming to me because that's what he did. He terminated prematurely, which was really painful. I have no doubt he cared about me, but I wish he would. But I wish he knew what the hell he was doing, so he doesn't hurt vulnerable clients. I'm looking for a more competent therapist. Thank you for a very affirming episode. Uh, end of email. Yeah. So in the psychodynamic world. We've known about transference, countertransference for over 100 years. It's been studied. It's been written about. It's been known. Yet research, research shows that many therapists today are undertrained or completely untrained in the topic of erotic or romantic transference, countertransference. I get so many emails from people talking about weird reactions from therapists. And they obviously seem problematic to me. So let's go over this email. Now, the emailer didn't give us a lot of detail, which is fine. But the so we have to read between the lines here a little bit. And again, it's hard to know. And again, we don't have the benefit of actually talking to the clinician. But 
This anonymous patron says that there was some kind of energy between them. We don't really know if it was shared by the therapist. The client says that there were a lot of boundaries were violated in that he extended their sessions beyond the hour. So again, this is a boundary crossing, extending your sessions beyond the hour. It's not, it's not a problem necessarily, but it's an indication that you might be heading down a road, the slippery slope. It also, as I always say, even just that one boundary crossing of allowing your sessions to go long which is a big problem for a lot of novice therapists, by the way, because you just feel bad and you don't want – it's ending sessions uh, gracefully as a therapist is one of the most advanced skills you learn as a therapist. And it's something that a lot of therapists don't get a lot of training in. Um, and it's particularly bad because when you go into private practice, you're so dependent on the income from your own clients that you really want to – you're really incentivized to please them a lot. And so going over – helps to feel like you are pleasing them a lot or I don't know. So a lot of therapists will extend their, their sessions beyond the hour. But here's the thing. Even if it's the only boundary crossing that you commit, what happens when your session, when your week gets full or when you can't go long with a session? Well, with some of your clients, they're going to be cool with that. With some of your clients, they're going to notice, oh, we're no longer going long with these sessions. I guess my therapist can't do that anymore. No big deal. But some of your clients, and this is the fucking key, people. This is the the most important thing to understand. And I'm not yelling at you listeners because you know, but I'm yelling at whoever this fucking therapist is, is that for many clients, they're so relationally traumatized and they need you as a clinician so much. You are the only only person on the planet who has ever been a secure attachment for them. You are their mother when they were six months old. You are their father when they were 12. You are their best friend when they were 17. You are their first, you know, boyfriend or girlfriend when they were 22. You are their one and only. You're everything wrapped up into one. And for you to get you know, willy nilly with your boundaries and to give mix, mixed messages is going to be a problem for those people. That's why you have the frame of therapy. Now, some of your clients, they're not going to have that history and they're just, they're going to roll with the punches. But other clients, again, these are people, these are normal people. There's a lot of people out there who have been relationally tra- traumatized, mistreated in this way, believe me. And as a consequence, when they go to therapy, they fall in love with you. And they and that's a good sign. That means that you are a secure person for them. That means you're doing the right things. But you also have to fucking understand the responsibility of that, which means you got to understand how to handle that in the long term. You know, in the moment, you might be like, ooh, you know, I, I really want to help this person. And the way I'm going to help them is to, you know, put extra work and to work – Give them another half hour at the end of the session and to give them special attention. Okay. You know, again, positive countertransference. It's it's a good impulse. But what you're not understanding is what happens when your schedule fills up or you get tired of working for free and you just start to pull back. 
And what kind of effect is that going to have on the client? Again, most clients, they're going to roll with it. But the relationally traumatized ones, it's going to hurt their feelings. It's going to be really complicated for them because they're going to say they're going to all that emotional mistreatment and abandonment they went through going up is going to get triggered naturally. They're going to be like, wait, so you're pulling away from me? I thought we were I thought our relationship was getting better. I thought I was a good client to you. And you're now depriving me of something that I feel entitled to now. It's going to be very confusing. They're going to be very hurt. They're going to be very angry about that. It's, it's, it's going to be painful. And then they're going to react. And then you got to know how to react to that reaction. And I'm guessing if you don't know how to uh, have the hold the frame of therapy, you also don't understand how to deal with relationship ruptures because these things go hand in hand. If you understand how to deal with relationship ruptures, then my guess is you also understand not to create them by doing silly things like extending your sessions with people who have relational traumas. Um, now, if you as a clinician say, I want to help this person out by, by seeing them more often during the week, then write it into the fucking treatment plan and bill for it. It's not hard. Or, you know, like you're, you're in private practice and you're seeing someone for an hour and, and you just have this urge like, man, if I could just see him two hours a week, I could really help this person. But you know what? They can't afford it. Okay, how about I do uh, – I write it into the treatment plan where I, I give them an hour of therapy and then I give them another hour of pro bono therapy or I you know, take half the money and you know, instead of $100 an hour, I charge $50 an hour so that they can afford to see me for two hours a week. I don't know. You know work it in the treatment plan. It's, it's, that's not a problem. But when you head into it, inform consent. And you got to make a choice like, okay, if I'm going to commit to two hours with this client, uh, I might be – I might have to commit those two hours for the duration of therapy, which could be 10, 20 years. So am I – is that what I'm willing to do? Am I willing to commit to that? And if you are, then great. Write it in the treatment plan. Make it work. Five hours a week. Who? It doesn't matter. But you got to work it into your treatment plan after you consult with someone because you're going a little off off the you know norm. But you consult with someone, you write it in the treatment plan, you have informed consent, you tell the client uh, what the deal is, you tell them what the expectation is, even if it was just temporary. You're like, okay, for the next six months, I have a little bit of extra time. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to extend our sessions to an hour and a half, but understand that in six months, I can't do that anymore. And it's not going to be personal to you. It's just that I, in six months, I don't have that time. You can do that as well, but you have to Think about it. You have to lay it out to people. You can't just randomly go over on some sessions and then at a later date go like, nope, I'm not going to do that anymore. That's not proper treatment. It's not understanding how human beings work. But that's not the only thing this patron is talking about here. Uh, she also says that the therapist frequently texted and emailed with, uh, with each other. Again, not necessarily a violation but definitely a, cross, a crossing, depending on the treatment modality, like I said. But again, we have a pattern here. Going over in your sessions, texting between sessions, emailing a lot between sessions. I'm guessing there's a lot of, um, I don't know, untherapeutic sorts of unnecessary texting and emails, what I'm guessing. And then she also meant that they went, they went to dinner together, which that's all that the patron said. So I don't know what the more details, but... I don't know if they went to dinner a number of times or whatever, but that's obviously a problem. Again, 
one could potentially, if you wrote it into the plan and you said you consulted with someone that you were going to have a session in the real world because you wanted to help your client to feel comfortable going to a restaurant or something, there there are ways, there, there are situations where I could say, okay, you know, you, you consulted, you informed consent, you went into it with some competence. But again, look at the look at the pattern. You know, sessions going beyond the hour, texting and emailing a lot between sessions, going to dinner. This is a pattern. My guess is is that the clinician did not consult, did not have any justification, did not document any of this. And then the patron says, you know, in, in the last episode I did about this, uh, the emailer says, said that I said, repeating my words, how are you going to justify it to your clients when you have to pull back? You know? And the patron says, this is so affirming to me because that's what he did. He terminated prematurely. Now, I don't know what that means, pre- terminating prematurely. Um, I, I suspect what that means is it's a very common story I hear is at some point uh, the therapist suddenly realizes they have to pull back. They either have they either realize that their client has romantic and sexual feelings for them and they're like, oh shit, I don't know how to deal with that, so I'm going to pull back and, and I'm giving the wrong impression here. Or the clinician also has romantic feelings for the client and suddenly realizes, oh my God, I've been playing with fire this whole time. I need to pull back. Or the clinician consulted with someone and the consultation was like, whoa, you got to pull back on the reins here, pal. Or the client attacked the therapist because the therapist was, uh, you know, an object of of attachment, and naturally the client is going to transfer certain pains and hurts onto the therapist, which will which will look like anger and and will look like hostility, but in reality it's just transference, which is expected. And because the clinician doesn't understand countertransference and transference, the clinician it took the clinician off guard. The clinician didn't know what to do, and then the and then the clinician just says, "I'm going to draw a boundary." And I hear this sometimes. You know, I've I've had supervisees, consultees, students will come to me with patients like this. They'll be like, you know, so I was talking with this client, and uh, the the client got real hostile with me, and so I'm. You know, what should I, I – I need to draw boundaries, right? I need to have more structure with this client. And I'm always like, well, well slow down. <laughs> like what do you think happened with that client? You know, what did you do to trigger your, your client's fears? Um, you know, the thing I always say is clients come to therapy because they have problems. And sometimes those problems aren't easy to detect. Sometimes those problems – aren't even known to the patient themselves. Sometimes the client doesn't know that they are acting out a transferential situation from their childhood. But that's why they're in a professional office with a professional who should who should know or at least should have ideas as to why. So this whole thing of like my client was hostile with me, I have to I have to draw boundaries with this person or I have to kick this person out of therapy is like akin to uh, me going to my dentist with a cavity and my dentist kicking me out of their of their office because I have a cavity because my dentist doesn't know how to deal with cavities or my dentist is scared of cavities. When a client is hostile with us, 
just because it scares you as a clinician and just because you don't know what you're doing doesn't mean you have the right to kick that person out of therapy. What it does mean is you need to get training in how to deal with that and you need to seek consultation and get good supervision around like, so my client was hostile with me and I feel like it's all my client's fault, but I don't know. Uh, you know, can you walk me through what happened here and can you tell me what I should be doing in this moment? Because I have an impulse to fire this client, but I don't really know. You know, that's what you're supposed to do. So it sounds like this therapist uh, it's drew a boundary. It's unclear exactly why. And this was really painful to the client. And it, uh, you know, was was not great. And my cat now wants to chime in. All right. This next email is from Anonymous from Philly, she calls herself. Uh, she says, I'm commenting on your most recent podcast called Dating Your Therapist. I specifically chose a woman therapist because I knew with every bone in my body that if I chose a man, I would definitely become attracted to him. Now, I finally find a therapist that I can connect with, and she is so amazing. Her boundaries are strong, and I love her approach. And guess what? I'm so attracted to her. I love her. I fantasize about her. My fantasies are mostly of us just kissing and holding each other. I told her how I felt, and I also told her I knew that it was never going to happen, nor did I ever expect it to happen. She handled it very graciously and professionally and agreed that it was never going to happen. I know exactly why I have these feelings for her. I have unmet needs and unhealthy childhood attachments, etc. I'm just so obsessed with transference and countertransference and wanting to break boundaries all the time. I want to know so much about her on the outside of therapy. I hate the feeling that I will never get to know the whole her. I also do a lot of my own research outside of therapy on trying to resolve this issue, but it's just so hard. I think about her all the time, and I'm always searching her online. I found out a lot about her on my own by just Googling and Facebooking her. I'm a, I'm total complex PTSD stalker, but I'm harmless. I'm a total CPTSD. CPTSD stalker, but I'm harmless. I see all the different things that her friends say to her, and they all love her and say such and say such loving things about her. So outside of therapy, I have a good idea that she's probably a pretty amazing person. I'm sure she could be a bitch too when she wants, but all but all in all, I know in my heart that she is a decent human being. And that is another reason why I feel so sad that I'll never get to have an outside relationship with her, even if it was just a friendship. Maybe you could do a podcast regarding this issue, but for the clients with tips on how to process through this and uh, with or without your therapist, it's so hard to understand and to resolve these feelings. I mean, look at this shit. It's three in the morning and I'm emailing you about her. It's so ridiculous. I'm not ashamed about it, and I know it's very normal, but it's just annoying as fuck. End of email. Yeah, as you say, totally normal. It sounds like you understand that. That's great. And now you're at the other phase, which people get to. At the first phase, they're ashamed, and you're, you've moved beyond that phase, which is good. You're not ashamed of it. But you're into this next phase where you're just like, but okay, it's normal, but I'm still in a lot of pain. And I, I don't know what to do. And I long for her and I miss her. And it hurts, you know, it, it's, 
you know, unrequited love kind of hurt in a, in a sense. How do I resolve it? Whenever I hear the word resolve, it's usually a red flag for someone who naturally wants to get out of something but doesn't realize that they can't. People will email me and say, you know, my my dog died six months ago and I'm still upset about it. How do I resolve these feelings? Or they'll say, I went through a really nasty divorce five years ago and I'm still thinking about it. How do I resolve this? You can't resolve it. That's the bottom line. Your body will resolve it as it is. Now, there's a way to accelerate resolution by talking about it, by not shaming yourself, by feeling the feelings, by noticing your feelings. And I know that and that will accelerate it. You know, you can prolong the pain by not facing it, by shaming yourself, by not talking about it. But as long as you're doing what you can do by feeling the feelings, talking about it, uh, taking it easy on yourself, then it's just going to take as long as it's going to take. It's a, it's a, it's very similar to grief. You know, I hope most of you understand that grief just has a life of its own. It just goes when it as it goes, and it will have waves as it has waves. You know, you can be twenty years after a divorce, or twenty years after losing a job, or twenty years after a friend of a friend breaks up with you, and you can have a massive wave of grief. That's just the reality. We have this cultural silly notion that you go through something difficult and then, uh, you know, within a week or two, you're fine. And that is the case for some losses, but not for most. And so the first thing I'll say to you is I, I feel or I know I can empathize with your pain and I can empathize with the longing and the frustration that you're feeling. And you're not beating yourself up, which is good. And you're looking for resolution. You're looking for answers. And part of the answer is there, there are no answers. And I, and I know people hate it when I say stuff like that. Like, oh, it's doomed. No. I mean, you can do what you can to make it go faster. But you're not going to – you can't just think it away. There's no, there's no solution. Believe me, if there was a solution, my God, I'd be a billionaire. If there was some kind of – someone would be a billionaire. If there was some kind of a solution to this problem, uh, some easy answer, some – or even a hard answer to this problem, then, uh, you know, someone would be a billionaire. There just isn't. Uh, like I said, the only thing you can do is to accelerate the recovery process. Um, keep talking about it. Keep thinking about it. Keep talking with your therapist about it. Keep internalizing that secure attachment. Make sure you see it as a secure attachment. That's an important part that I that I often will say is something that some people don't do actively, which is you are in a secure. I, I want to commend your therapist, by the way. You know, it sounds like your therapist is a good one, especially in contrast to the other examples that we've talked about today. You have a good therapist with boundaries. Sounds like a good attachment. You're attached to her. You have all the natural, uh, you know, outpouring of emotion towards her which means that therapy is working. You also have the associated unfortunate pain and longing as a result. That's all par for the course. Make sure 
and it sounds like you are, that when you're with her and when you think about her, that you frame her in the way that she should be framed, which is in a positive light and a, and a light that is trustworthy, a light that is that someone, you know, that she cares about you, that, you know, she's available for you. So because what I'll see some people do is they will be in a secure relationship with a therapist and they'll, they'll be in similar kind of situations you are, but they will question it all the time. They'll be like, well, you know, I'm not really quite sure about it. I don't, I don't really know that she is really that, she, you know, she says she cares about me, but I don't, I don't really know if that's true to question it consciously. Now it's normal to have the unconscious emerging distrust because that you acquired from childhood and, and, and learning from your experience as you grew up, but to go along with that and say, well, I, I'm having trouble trusting this person and therefore this person, I'm not quite sure if they're trustworthy. If you are in a trustworthy relationship and you've established that and you don't have any reason to believe that they're this, this therapist is not to be trusted then you have to actively try to see that person for who they are, which is a trustworthy professional who is, you know, safe to attach to. Because as you do that, it it accelerates the healing. Because if you don't do that and you don't allow that attachment to be as smooth as possible, then you don't have as, as, you know, strong of a corrective healing experience as you could have. So that's another thing you could be doing. The other thing you could be doing, I don't know if you're doing this, is to get support from other people, uh, you know, and absorb, create and absorb a secure attachments with as many people as possible, not just your therapist. Uh, sometimes that's hard to do if you have a lot of transference to other people, but um, that's another thing you can do. Um, so another thing I'll say about this is I get emails about this sometimes. You know, you say you're a complex PTSD stalker and – uh, you're saying that you, you know, you Google your therapist and you Facebook your therapist. You didn't say that you're breaking any kind of, you know, via, you're not violating any kind of privacy. You're not hacking into her account or anything. You're not saying that. So I'll assume you're not doing that. I do get some emails from some people saying in, you know, a similar situation as you who are actually, um, like I had one person who said she was breaking into her therapist's office or her professor's office. She she had this pattern of breaking into people's, um, you know, place of work and then figuring out their password and breaking into their computer. And, and you know, she was mistreated growing up, has a really hard time trusting people. And she has that compulsion to find out more information and to try to kind of meld with her attachment figures. And since the attachment figures are often professionals who have their own lives and are pushing back a little bit with their appropriate boundaries, she had this longing to, you know, she wanted to be with them. And so the only way she could really do that was through passive aggression of actually invading their privacy. Because as you find out, you know, anonymous from Philly, when you find out a little bit of information about her, it actually reassures you. You know, you, you're not doing this, but you, the other person did. She actually would drive by her therapist's house and spy on her therapist. And and although she didn't feel great about it, she she felt like it was so helpful to her to see her therapist, to have that contact. Like, yes, she exists in the world. She she hasn't disappeared. You know, object permanence. And you know, for some people who have been mistreated, 
they they intellectually understand that this person exists, but when they're out of sight, they they sometimes have this paranoia that this person no longer really exists, and that can be very scary for someone. And so, it motivates people to to Google and Facebook and to drive by their house and potentially break into their computers and stuff. So I get the impulse, but that's potentially that is immoral behavior to invade someone's privacy to 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 risk scaring somebody. If I had a client who did that, who had broken into my computer or something, uh, that's where I might draw the line. Like, I'll, I'll, like I was talking about earlier, clinicians who understand relational traumas should be able to put up a lot. Um, they should be able to put up with hostility and accusations and um, even emotional abuse from clients because they're acting out their transference, and it's part of the course. It should be expected. But if someone took that to another level and actually broke in to my computer or my office or was physically stalking me or hacked into my Facebook account or something, uh, that would actually uh, – that's never happened to me. But if it did, uh, I would, have, I would have either have to be extremely reassured that that was never going to happen again or I would terminate with that person. You know, I, I need to feel safe too, I, and I deserve to feel safe as a clinician. And so uh, it, be very careful about that kind of stuff because, I, you know, I understand why you're doing it. I understand why you have the impulse. But if you're breaking any kind of law particularly, but even if you're just breaking your therapist's trust in you, that can be really harmful to them. They could be really scared about that naturally. I mean, they don't they don't know what you're capable of necessarily. And so they might have to terminate with you or they might have to report you or something. So, you know, be careful about that. Now, you, Anonymous from Philly, said you just Googled her and Facebooked her. I assume by Facebooking you mean this clinician has public-facing things on Facebook, which isn't unethical. It's just, um, you know, it's fine. But if you're actually hacking into her account somehow or I don't know, then that's crossing a line. You didn't – it doesn't sound like you're doing that. But anyway. And now clinicians, what I'll say to you is watch what is online about you. Uh, you need to routine – this is one of my recommendations that I've given before is you need to routinely Google yourself. And I've gotten funny reactions from people about that. You know, I'll say make sure you Google yourself every month and make sure – that you know what is out there about you. And, you know, some people will giggle about that. They'll giggle Google about that. They'll be like, well, that's silly. I'm not going to Google myself, you know. I'm not narcissistic. I'm not going to, like, Google myself. And I'm like, it's not narcissistic. It's standard practice of today. In the same way that you need to test how soundproof your office is by setting up the you know like a radio or something in your office and then stand outside your office you need to you need to field test that shit to make sure that your office is soundproof in the same way that you need to field test what's on the internet about you because your clients will google you that's not that's not a weird thing to do in fact it's 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 probably good uh, client practice to google your therapist especially at the beginning of therapy to make sure that your therapist isn't some kind of serial killer or something or some kind of sexual predator it's it's normal so so understand what's on the internet about you and understand what's public facing uh one for your own privacy but two because i get emails from people sometimes saying that they 
They did Google their therapist, and they found bad information. They found information about a divorce or about some kind of – they got fired from a job because they were unethical or you know some kind of thing that would concern a client. And when a client sees that, that can be very threatening to them. Again, for many clients, they're not going to care. For many clients, they're not even going to Google their, their therapist. And if, if they did, they wouldn't care what they found. But again, we have a population of our clients who are relationally traumatized to the extent that their relationship with you is extremely sensitive to threats. And when they have those threats, and they're faced with those threats, they can have a lot of bad effects. They could terminate early. They could be hostile with you. They could pull back in terms of how they disclose to you. They could... Um, you know, determine that you're a terrible person and can't be trusted and then the therapy doesn't work well. And thus, we have to be careful about what is self-disclosed to those clients. In some ways, they need to understand, the clients, that you are kind of above the rest of the world. And let me explain. Best case scenario, uh, and this is what I try to engineer with my clients, in this way, is my clients believe that I'm a human being and that I'm authentic and that I'm real. I'm not a robot. But I'm also above certain things, that I'm above the pettiness of life in general, that I'm not going to overreact, that I'm a stable, mature, wise person. Now, you could argue that that's unrealistic and every, everyone's a human being, but Therapy works best when clients believe that about me. Now, what I can say is that every therapist has a wise, mature side of themselves. And I do too. And so I uh, exemplify or show that side to my clients. Now, they might intellectually know, well, like this person emailing, I, you know, I'm sure that Kurt can be a bitch sometimes. You know, that's. I, I, He's, Kirk's a human being, so of course he's going to be that way. You know, my clients might say that. But it's not in their face. And so they are allowed the perception. You know, it's sort of like if you are – if you have a 14-year-old child, that 14-year-old child should intellectually know by that point that their parents probably have bad days, that their parents probably have insecurities. You know, intellectually, that 14-year-old should – be able to figure out, yeah, I bet you my parents have their own problems. But the 14-year-old shouldn't know about those problems because they're not developmentally ready for that. And I know some of you right now are going, uh-oh, I knew all sorts of shit about my parents when I was 14, and I sort of felt like that was okay. There are nuances, but in general, the best case scenario is children are protected from the reality of their parents' full psyche until the child is like 30 years old, honestly. I've seen 25-year-olds crumble under knowing how vulnerable their parents are because our dependency, on, our emotional dependency on our parents really never ends, but it's still present in, in our 20s for most people. It's really not until we're in our 30s that we really start, in general, on average, stepping over the Rubicon into being mostly secure and independent. Um, 
so what am I saying? What I'm, what I'm saying is that as a therapist, it's similar to that relationship and that your, your clients will know that, yeah, you know, my therapist probably has all the ups and downs that everyone else has, but they shouldn't feel it. They shouldn't, it shouldn't be in their face because for the 14 year old and for the client, in order for them to feel as safe as possible, which is the best sort of treatment you can have, they have to have the freedom to have a fantasy that you are all good. They need to be able to idealize you because if they can't idealize you, then they have no safety in the world. They need to be able to believe you as a therapist will always be there and will be there in the right way that you need to be there for them. If they don't believe that because of their relational traumas, they'll, they're just flapping in the wind. They have no security. They have no foundation to stand on. They need that to stand on. So if you have any messy information on the internet that is available to people, even if you believe, well, what are you going to do? Um, it could actually harm your clients. And I get emails from people saying that, you know, I'll get emails from people saying, yeah, I Googled my therapist and I found out that uh, uh, she was fired or she went through this nasty divorce or, and I used to like her, but now I don't know. I don't know if I can trust her. So just be very careful about what's on the internet. Again, the other thing to you clients is try your best to attach to therapists who are worthy of that attachment and, you know, try to thrive in that positive attachment. Anyway, let's go on to another email. Okay, this next email is from another anonymous patron. She writes, I'm a new listener and patron of the podcast, and I hope it's okay to ask you for some advice. I am concerned about a romantic transference I'm experiencing towards my psychiatrist. I know this is a topic you have addressed multiple times in the podcast. It's actually how I discovered psychology in Seattle. However, after listening to all the material I can find on the subject, I still feel lost as to what to do, and I have and I have some additional questions. I have been seeing the psychiatrist as part of my undergoing transcranial magnetic stimulation or TMS treatment for major depression. This treatment is intensive and generally involves sessions five days per week or six weeks, so a lot of time is spent with your doctor. I started to process in I started the process in spring of this year and should have finished it by now, but there have been some bumps in the road. Although it is, is it, it, it is an extremely rare ad adverse event, I had a seizure in his office during treatment one day and had to stop the treatment while getting that checked out. It took about two months to finally get cleared by a neurologist. It's great that nothing serious was found, but I will never really know why the seizure happened to me, and it has left me with substantial anxiety. So just chiming in here. So what she's talking about, if you don't know people out there, uh, she's she's getting transcranial magnetic stimulation for her major depression. People who suffer from major depression have a number of different uh, treatment options available to them that are used at first, namely uh, antidepressant medication. There's various medications that one can take in addition to, uh, you know, talking with a therapist, uh, cognitive behavioral therapy, interpersonal therapy. And if these things don't work, then a lot of times what, what will be recommended are things for what we call treatment-resistant depression. Uh, one of the treatments that can be utilized during this time is transcranial magnetic stimulation, which is using a magnet to uh, – a magnetic field to cross 
the barrier between, you know, your brain and the rest of the world and you induce electrical currents in the brain as a way of uh, trying to um, do something to cause the depression to go away. Now, transcranial magnetic stimulation, I'm guessing in 100 years are going to look at what we're doing right now is pretty archaic because essentially what we do is we induce these electrical currents inside people's brains and we just kind of think, well, this this sort of works for some people. But I mean, that's why it's only used for treatment of resistant people is because there's there are side effects for sure. And it doesn't really have a high success rate, but it can work for some people. So if someone's suffering from major depression and nothing else is working, then it's sort of like, well, let's give this a try. So I don't know if that's the case for this uh, client, but um, but that's usually what it, what's happening. And if you know anything about the brain, if you're going to induce electrical currents in the brain, there's a chance that something is going to go wrong, i.e. seizures. So it's it, it's it actually is a known, uh, you know, not really rare, but not doesn't happen very often. But, it, you know, it happens. Seizures happen to people with transcranial magnetic stimulation, or even some people will just send electrical shocks actually through their brain sometimes. It makes sense that that's, you know, potentially going to cause a, a seizure of some kind. So for you, uh, anonymous patron, it sounds like your treatment team is giving, the imp- giving you the impression that it's this mysterious rare event, but it's actually not. It's actually... You know, it stands to reason as to why it would happen. And I've actually seen this with physicians before, and I guess I've seen it with therapists too. But I think it's, you know, because uh, bad side effects are more, more noticeable in the medical field, I see this happen sometimes with physicians. They will, like, actually, I'll just give an example of myself. I had a root canal because I, I had a crack in one of my far back teeth, like the you know, my last tooth in my lower part of my mouth, if that makes any sense. And I had a root canal. And immediately after the procedure, like the next, maybe that night or the next day, I had vertigo. I'd never had vertigo before in my life. I had massive vertigo for probably two or three weeks. It was awful. If you don't know what it is, like, you know, when you spin around, like 10 times, you, you know, you, you run in, you just spin in a circle and you have that real wheezy feeling like the whole world is, is, you know, turning and you just have that feeling, dizzy feeling, but your field of vision is turning too. Like everything is, and you, it's hard to walk straight and you feel very nauseous and you want to throw up and it's very, it doesn't feel good. Well, I had that 24 seven for two or three weeks. And I know some of you listeners out there have been through that as well. And there's a lot of different possibilities as to why someone would have vertigo. And I didn't, at first I was like, you know, well, this is weird. And I'd look up on the internet, why would you have vertigo? Well, it could be because you're developing these crystals in your inner ear and it just takes time for it to kind of work itself out or maybe you had this or that. And then another thing I saw was if you have some kind of dental procedure or a surgery procedure, sometimes you can get a, a little bit of an infection or something in that region of your head, and that can result in, in vertigo as well. Well, I was like, and then and then I looked at the literature on root canals, and, you know, when you're doing a root canal, you, um, 
you're drilling into the tooth down to nerves and blood vessels that are, you know, below the tooth. And then you're filling it in. But there's a brief period of time there where you're, the inside of your body is open to the air and bacteria can naturally get in there, right? And so I started wondering if the uh, root canal had anything to do with this completely out of the blue vertigo that I had. This was probably like, I don't know, a couple years ago. And so I went to the doctor and I, you know, the surgeon that did the root canal and I was like, so I have this massive vertigo and I looked on the internet, it looked like it could be a side effect. And they were like, oh, no, 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 it can't be from the root canal. I, and, and I was like, oh, really? Because I, you know, trusted the physician and the physician's like, oh, no, 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 it's, it's not from the root canal. And I was like, well, I read on the internet, oh, no, no, it's, it's not a thing, you know, the internet's wrong. And I was like, oh, okay. And I was like, well, geez, you know, it, it is sort of weird that I had this surgery on my body and the next day for two weeks I had vertigo. It just seems, but you know, you never, could be coincidental. Absolutely. Coincidences happen. When, then I started looking into it further and I found out that no, it, it all, although it is a kind of a rare side effect, it does happen. And the way that this physician was paint, you know, painting a picture for me was it was impossible to have these things be connected. But then I look, you know, and, and research art, because I, then I started actually looking at the actual scientific literature, and I find that, no, you know, it, it, it can happen. Now, it's impossible to know if that's why it happened for me, because we just don't have those kinds of technologies. But for the physician to give this impression, because it's when they're, I guess they think it's within their interest to downplay rare side effects, because they don't want to freak people out, or they want to reduce their liability or something. I don't know. So... For you, anonymous patron, I don't know if this is the case for you, but it's possible that your uh, medical team is doing the same thing because it not only is it a known, you know, rare but but a thing that happens to people uh, where they will have seizures from transcranial magnetic stimulation. Not only is it known according to empirical observation, but it's also kind of obvious to me. <laughs> I mean, any again, anytime you're you're uh, causing electrical, you know, artificial electrical currents to be uh, pumped through your brain, it makes sense that there's going to be there's going to be things like seizures that 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 could happen. So anyway, um, just going on with your email here. Since restarting the transcranial magnetic stimulation treatment, I have struggled a great deal with anxiety and panic attacks because of the seizure. He has been very attentive and helpful in making adjustments to the treatment to reduce my anxiety as much as possible, and we have gotten to the point where I can tolerate it without panicking. Uh, just chiming in here. That's good. Yeah. I, I Talk with your treatment, treatment team. I, from my, it's not my area, but from my understanding about seizures, um, it's generally not um, a terrible thing that can happen to you. So, But I can understand that it could be very frightening to go through a seizure. Uh, so make sure that you get the help that you need with that. I think because of the lengths he has gone to continue my care and him being with me when I regained consciousness after my seizure, I started to develop romantic feelings towards him. I think seeing his face when my brain was still rebooting must have crossed some wires. Naturally, upon realizing this was becoming a problem, I googled it and came across a wealth of material about transference. Again, just chiming in here. A lot of people believe, and I often talk about this, 
because of the internet, that transference means romantic transference. But that's transference is a general term. We to to put it in to the old words is we will transfer or displace our parents onto other people. So if we had um, you know longing for attachments with our parents that weren't met and we have a therapist, then we will transfer that longing onto our therapist. If we felt like our parents treated, mistreated us a lot, and we, we have a lot of anger towards our parents, when we have a deep enough relationship with our therapist, we will transfer that anger onto our therapist. So it's, it's anything that's transferred, uh, including erotic or romantic or deep attachment transference. Um, so just know that. The internet when it comes to psychology and psychotherapy, the internet is 99% of the time wrong. Um, so it, for whatever reason, it's just one of those things that the internet just can't figure out. And a lot of misinformation seems to propagate. And there aren't enough therapists out there actually monitoring the information that's on the internet. Anyway, uh, most of what I could find about transference was specific to the relationship between a client and therapist, but he is not my therapist. I recently started seeing a new therapist, but am not well established with him and wouldn't be comfortable bringing this up in therapy. I don't know what to do about my feelings. They are causing me problems, but I don't feel that it would be appropriate to ask the psychiatrist to address it with me because he is not actually my therapist. I also don't want to put him in a difficult position when he has already done so much for me. And although it is probably irrational, I'm a bit scared that this would cause him to decide he can't continue treating me, which would have serious consequences for my mental health. What do you think I should do? Will these feelings eventually just go away if I don't address them, since I know that it's the result of transference and it isn't actually quote-unquote real? Um, what, do you think, what do you think you would do in my situation? End of email. Yeah, it's normal. I'm glad you're not shaming yourself. It's very good. I'm glad you've looked into it and found out that it's normal. That's good. Definitely talk with your new therapist about it. Uh, yeah, I, it makes sense that you would be a little um, cautious about talking to your psychiatrist about that. It's possible that your psychiatrist knows how to deal with this sort of situation. It's also possible that your psychiatrist doesn't know how to deal with it. Plus, as you say, your psychiatrist is not your therapist. Your psychiatrist is in charge of your transcranial magnetic um, stimulation treatment, and you don't have sit-down, in-depth relationship talks with him. And so you don't really have the venue to process that, even if he was good about that. He would have to, I mean, I'm just trying to imagine how that would look like. So let's say you tell him, and then he knows how to react to it, which isn't guaranteed. And then he says, okay, so this is going to be, a, you know, we're going to have to process these feelings. We're going to have to get these feelings out on the table, but we only talk for like 10 minutes at a time when, and we're talking about her, you know, magnetic treatment situation. We're not talking about this other stuff. And it'd be sort of unethical for me to dive into that with her because she has a therapist. So she really should be talking with her personal therapist about this. So it, it does potentially put him in a weird position, but you have a therapist. And so, that you know you're asking me what I would do well I would try to talk with my therapist about this I would try to be open I would try to be vulnerable and I would try to trust my therapist I mean th 
there's very little threat to telling your current therapist about your feelings towards your psychiatrist, you know, because your current therapist presumably won't be threatened by anything like this and will be there for you to, to talk about that. Again, as I was talking about with the previous emailer, I get your pain around this, you know, it's causing you problems. You don't know what to do with these feelings. It's, it's very difficult for you. And you, you want the feelings to go away or you want to resolve them somehow, but that might not be possible either because of your uh, natural tendency to transfer to secure professionals, which is a good impulse. Or because, as you say, your brain was rebooting and seeing his face and being there, you could have regressed to this this infantile brain space and he's now your dad. So it makes sense. It's normal and the pain and the longing might be there. There might even be some romance. I don't know. And it's hard. And it's you're going to think about him a lot and you're going to want to be closer to him than you can possibly ever be. And you're going to miss him and, and all those things are going to be happening and you can accelerate the healing process by establishing a secure attachment with your current therapist and internalizing that. And that can take years. So, so there's that. The other thing I want to say is uh, I get this sort of language. Sometimes people will say like, like, and you said it, you said, I know that it's the result of transference and it isn't exactly real. Uh, it, it, there is no distinction be tra- between transference and real. There's, you know, transference is not unreal. It's not, it's not invalid, you know. Um, there isn't real love and then, and then transfer love. It's all love. The body doesn't know <laughs> the difference. Um, so whatever feelings you're having for him are real and the result of transference. In some ways of conceptualizing all relationships, which I halfway ascribe to, all relationships are the result of transference. For example, when we are infants, we suckle, right? We, uh, you know, we breastfeed, um, that kind of thing. So one of our, you know, from the second we're born, one of the first, uh, even before we're born, kids will be sucking their thumbs. One of the most intimate, most uh, soothing, most important attachment communication exists through our mouths. This is why we have an. This is why Freud talked about an oral phase, because for infants, the action of having things put in our mouth is one of the most important uh, emotional things that we have. And it's, it's an instinct. We, we evolved, right? When, as soon as we're born, no one has to teach us how to suckle. We just naturally do it in the same way that most infants naturally hold their breaths when you, uh, when you put them underwater. We just have this instinct because it helps us to survive. And we don't, we don't forego that instinct as we age. For the rest of our lives, we have an instinct to quote-unquote suckle or to um, get attachment and physical pleasure through our mouths. And the way that we do this in our Seattle culture is through kissing or through oral sex or through um, sucking on fingers or toes or something. But the primary way is through kissing, right? Kissing makes no sense, really. But it makes total sense when, you know, if an alien 
was observing us from space, they would look at us and go, oh, look at those adult humans. Why are they, why are they suckling each other's faces? I mean, they're not getting any subs, you know, they're not getting any food from this person. What are they doing? And then they would see the progression and be like, oh, they've just retained this attachment behavior from when they were infants. In the same way that if you have a cat, when they get real lovey and, you know, lovey-dovey, they will need, right? They will, um, they will use their paws to, uh, you know, they need, if you know what I mean, with the K, <laughs> they, um, they rub this repetitive rub with their paws, you know, if you know what I'm saying. And it, uh, kittens will do that because they're trying to stimulate, they, they, kittens instinctually do that. One, because they're trying to stimulate blood, uh, uh, milk production in their mother as they suckle. But they're also, uh, the mother also has a lot of sensitive nerves on their stomach that um, it feels good for the kittens to knead and to rub the mother's stomach. And so as an adult kittens, adult cats will do that when they feel pleasure, they will, they will do that same thing. And it's the same for us. We, as when we're children and we're looking for attachment and security and for love, uh, and we're receiving love and sustenance, we are, um, we're using our mouths and our tongues, <laughs> you know, to uh, connect to someone else's skin and to, uh, and to suckle, you know. And so we retain that into adult life. So one could frame that as we are transferring to our spouses and our romantic and sexual partners the same emotional energy that we had with our parents. Now, some people would say that that's beyond the threshold of transference definition, and others would say it is. I, like I said, I'm 50-50 on that. But I, conceptually, I totally see it that way. Um, so anyway, uh, we would not look at that as invalid or not real sorts of feelings. When you're suckling the face of your spouse, <laughs> it's not fake, right? It's not, it's not unreal. It's real. That's the adult version of attachment in that way. And when you transfer your attachment longings to your psychiatrist, it's real. And it's, it's not a fake. It is a good impulse. It's normal. It's fine. It's great. It's, and it's not, quote, unquote, just transference. It is transference, <laughs> but it also is real. And I just want to make that clear because I maybe in past episodes I was giving that impression that somehow you had real love and real attachment and then you had this fake thing called transference. No, it's it's all real. Um, so, yeah. So, again, what would I do? I would talk with my therapist about it. I would be open. I'd develop that. I'm guessing that what will happen is that as you learn to trust your therapist, you know, not your psychiatrist – you will begin to attach to that person. That person will become your primary love, will become your primary attachment. And if that therapist knows what they're doing, which I have to hope and assume that he, he does know what he's doing, then that will cultivate that relationship and you'll start to transfer primarily onto him. And that will be a venue where you can actually talk about all that stuff. And your feelings towards your psychiatrist will diminish to the point where it's not bothering you anymore. So that's what I'll say about that. 
All right, let's let's read this last email. Can you believe I get all these emails in response to this episode in which I talked about dating a therapist, which was another email, <laughs> which and the only reason why that person emailed me was because I talked about it so many times before that. There's just so many of you out you of you out there who have experienced you know things like this. All right, anonymous patron wrote. I used to have Friday sessions with my old therapist. I was the last client he saw before the weekend, and he would always prolong the sessions for me. I had these feelings for him that later developed into a crush. We connected. We had chemistry. We could laugh even when talking about hard stuff. I used to ask him very personal questions, and he would respond, but not get into detail, of course. I wrote weekly journals that almost turned into novels that he read and talked about in sessions with me. So nine months into therapy, I confessed my confused feelings to him, which he took very easy and said something like, I like you too. I find you charming and witty, and you're attractive. Your feelings are completely normal and nothing to be afraid of. It's a normal part of therapy, and we can talk about it if you like. He didn't act on those feelings, and he didn't reciprocate. After I told him all about my feelings, they went away. I was also convinced I didn't have transference, but looking back, I'm quite sure now that's all that it was. After our therapy ended and I moved, he called me once a month until I got a new therapist, and we still email from time to time. End of email. Okay, I think this email is really great from this anonymous patron because it shows that this therapist did do some boundary crossings, right? Not boundary violations, but some boundary crossings. So the first boundary crossing is that he would, um, he would prolong the session for her. Um, you know, it was the last client he saw before the weekend, and he would, he would always prolong the sessions for her. So that's a boundary crossing. Now, as I said earlier, that's not a terrible thing, but it's a red flag, something that a, if a therapist needs to watch out for. And if you eventually have to pull back on that, it could, it could hurt the client. Now, the therapist apparently didn't have to do that, but let's go on more here. Um, they would laugh together. You know, they connected, they had chemistry and they, you know, they would laugh, which is kind of like a self-disclosure. It's a letting down your guard as a therapist, you know, sort of allowing yourself to spontaneously laugh with your clients. Again, it's a minor boundary crossing, but, you know, but, it, but in relation to the previous emails, it's, if I just read the first half of this email, you'd be like, oh boy, where is this headed? But we l- learned that it actually ended well. Other boundary crossings here. Um, I used to ask him very personal questions and he would respond, but not get into detail, of course. So here's a boundary crossing of, of sorts where the client is like, are you married or have you ever smoked pot or, you know, have you ever, um, I don't know, been dumped or something? You know, these kinds of personal questions that you might get asked by your, your clients and he uh, answered them, but he didn't go into detail. So it's a boundary crossing. It's a minor self-disclosure or some kind of self-disclosure, but a red flag. Again, in relation to the previous emails that I read, it's like, uh uh-oh, where is this headed? We got prolonging the sessions. We got self-disclosing about personal things. What's happening here? And then we have another boundary crossing of sorts where she says she, she wrote weekly journals that almost turned into novels that he would read. 
This is, um, now I don't know if exactly this is what she's saying, but I suspect what she's saying is that he would read these long journal entries outside of therapy and then they would talk about it while they were, were in session together. So this is another boundary crossing because you're reading the journal outside of session and presumably not charging for that service for that time. You know, if I had a client who said that they wanted me to spend a half an hour reading their journal outside of therapy, I would just charge them for it. I'd be like, sure, if, if that's what you want to do, but that's a half an hour of my time and, and I have to charge you for it. Not because I want to penalize the client for being open with me, but it's, it's just adding to the treatment plan. You know, it'd be like, add, it's just adding another procedure. And so you want to be professional and it just, just costs more money. And then she says that not, she started to develop uh, romantic feelings towards him and she confessed her confused feelings to him. And he responded with, he responded very well, but he also responded with some boundary crossing as well because he said, I like you too. I find you charming and witty and you're attractive. So that is a boundary crossing. Now, if I, we just ended the story there, we'd go, oh boy, this is headed towards a bad place. But look what happened. He didn't say, yes, let's, you know, entertain a romantic relationship. He was just authentic. He just said, yeah, you know, and this is where people get confused is clinicians will learn that it is okay sometimes to be authentic and say, yeah, you know what? I'm attracted to you too. And if we weren't in therapy together, I don't know, maybe we would get along in dating situation. So, in some situations, that boundary crossing is actually therapeutic to tell a client because one, to hear that from your therapist could boost your self-esteem. Two, if it's, uh, it's being authentic, it's being real. And uh, authenticity can go a long way between therapist and client. And so some trainees will hear that tagline and they won't understand it on the underlying principle. And what and so they'll just forge ahead and say, yeah, well, if you're attracted to your client, you just say it. Without understanding the underlying principle, the bigger picture of like, well, how does that disclosure fit into the broad treatment of this client? You know, um, so just a side note, I just, I have a bunny. We have, for for whatever reason in Seattle, there's this, there's a lot of bunnies in Seattle. There's also a lot of spiders this summer. <laughs> Because um, there's different kind of cycles of wildlife in Seattle, and um, I have this little wild bunny in, in in the yard. And every morning, me and my wife would see it in the front yard. I even posted a picture of the bunny in our front yard on Facebook. And um, for the past few weeks, both of me and my wife, we haven't seen the bunny in in our yard. And as I'm recording this, I'm looking out into my backyard with the trees and the bushes and stuff. And I just saw the bunny. So, um, I'm glad that the bunny hasn't, uh, moved away. So we still have the bunny with us. And I'm going to tell my wife that, um, the bunny has not abandoned us. We don't have bunny abandonment issues. Um, so, uh, and then the, of course the squirrels, there's always the squirrels and we also have raccoons. We have security cameras. And so, uh, uh, the security cameras at night will pick up uh, raccoons. I think I even posted a, a video on Facebook of <laughs> one of my security cameras picking up on the raccoons. So if any of you people are thinking about stalking me, understand I have security cameras. I have several all over the place, not for clients, but because um, our house was broken into about a year ago, which was um, really traumatic. 
And uh, I thought, I looked into all the different security options and um, it this camera system is, I just thought was really cool. Because like I can just look at my phone any moment and, and look at all the cameras that are, you know, all over the place. And it's just, and it, if there's any movement, they ding, ding, and you get these notifications on your phone and they record everything. Anyway, <laughs> maybe the, maybe the camera picked up the bunny and I can actually show that to my wife. Anyway. Um, so what was I saying? Okay. So then we go on to the point in the story where the, the so the client says, I have feelings for you. And the therapist says, I like you too. I'm, and, and, and the therapist crosses that boundary and is authentic, but then doesn't act on them, doesn't reciprocate. And for this client, after she revealed the feelings to him, the feelings kind of went away. And, um, and as, she, as the therapy ended and she moved away, they would call about once a month, which again is a boundary crossing and not necessarily the standard of care. And then when she got a new therapist, uh, they would they still email from time to time. So we see here several boundary crossings, probably like eight significant boundary crossings, that if this was my supervisee, I would not let them do that. I would say, uh, first off, do not prolong your sessions with your client. It's too risky. Um, also, uh, if your client tells you that they have feelings for you, um, by all means, don't shame them and, you know, process those feelings with them. Tell them they're in a safe place. Thank them for being vulnerable with you. But don't tell them your own personal feelings because uh, until you and I talk about those feelings and, and make sure that you can deliver that information and bear the consequences of it afterwards. Um, I would also tell a supervisee that they once they terminate, they should not be calling them afterwards and they should not be emailing with them afterwards because, again, it's risky uh, for, for a number of reasons. And so he's, he's crossing boundaries that I, wouldn't, I would not do and that I would not allow my supervisees to do, but those things are not inherently unethical. One could make an argument that it was in the best interest of the client to take those risks. You know, the risks of... Uh, of especially you know going along and revealing that you actually like you have feelings for your i mean it's hard to say exactly what was communicated from her description you know she, she says that he said something like i like you too i find you charming and witty and you're attractive um you know finding someone charming and witty i think that's not too far down the line but saying i like you too depends on what he means by that but to say that your client is attractive that that's a risk because um now, what I'll say here is my assessment, my very back-of-the-napkin assessment of this anonymous patron that wrote in, is that her relational traumas aren't severe because her, her relational traumas are enough so that she has an outpouring of, of attachment towards her therapist that, man, that manifests as a lot of things, including romance and sexual attraction. Uh, because that's indicative of relational traumas. Um, and, I, and as you know, I talk about most of us have relational traumas uh, of significance. So she had enough relational traumas for her to have that transference, but not enough so that when uh, she disclosed the feelings to him, they didn't really persist. 
which I've seen before. When people have, uh, when they're in a secure attachment therapeutic relationship, and they have, say, you know, mild to moderate uh, relational traumas, they navigate the, the feelings aren't over. They they don't overwhelm the client. They're there. They talk about them, and then they just kind of go away. Uh, so that's kind of what it looks like to me. So if this therapist had this approach with someone with greater relational traumas, it could have gone the other way. And that's why I don't let my supervisees do this sort of thing because I, I can't necessarily gauge among their clients who is at risk of it going the other way. Because we've heard other accounts uh, prior to this email and, and other episodes as well of therapists having this kind of approach. And what can happen is the, the, the client can um, be very confused by that. They can be like, okay, well, wait a second. Um, my therapist likes me. My therapist is attracted to me. That feels pretty awful. One part of me is very gratified about that. One part of me, you know, that part of me really wants my therapist to be sexually attracted to me. But I have another part of me that's really freaked out about that. And, and is he going to hurt me? You know, is there something going on there? I can't believe, why would he tell me that? I'm, and this is almost word for word, the sort of accounts that I get. Why would he tell me that he's attracted to me? That seems wrong. And again, there's a part of me that, really likes that he's attracted to me, but there's another part of me that's terrified of that. And so I can't believe he did that to me. And then that morphs into hostility and anger and protection. The client goes back into therapy and just starts yelling at the therapist. You're a pervert. You're, you know, you're um, a terrible therapist. How could you do this? And now the therapist is like, oh shit, you know, did I do something unethical? What do I do? And they don't know how to react. And then the conflict kind of persists because the client is accusing the therapist of things. So the therapist naturally starts to try to defend themselves in this untherapeutic manner. And then things get out of whack. And then it, there's a termination. And uh, the, you know, and often the therapist will say, I don't want to work with you anymore because you're being really hostile. And then now the client is harmed. So Although I'm really glad that it worked out for the best for this anonymous patron, it just as easily could have gone horribly wrong. Another a boundary crossing to, to point to is after therapy ended and she moved, they would call once a month. Now, again, because this anonymous, anonymous patron has the ego strength to handle that kind of situation – it didn't go badly and it actually helped her to transition to her next therapist. But the reason why I don't let my supervisees do this is because again, and I wouldn't do it is because you just don't know how someone's going to take that as you transition to the, you're transitioning from one mode of therapy into another mode, just because it's post quote unquote termination. If you're still in contact with that client, it's not post termination. You're still involved in that client's life. And therefore it could be argued. You're still treating that client. So as they were calling once a month, it's not like now that person isn't a client anymore. That per, you know, the anonymous patron is still a client. And to to see to, to now again, there's nothing horrible about that. You ha, you have to head into it with informed consent. You could say to a client, "I strongly recommend you find a therapist because you're moving away. For these reasons, you need to continue your treatment to work on A, B, and C." And I want to be there for you as you transition. And so how about we talk on the phone once a month 
And then once you find your therapist, we will email once a month for, you know, five months. But, but at the end of that time, then I will terminate with you and we will not communicate. Um, as long as that's fine with your, with your new therapist, uh, which you need to find once you move. That's fine. And, and you tell them the risks and the pros and the cons, the expectations. You say that if you don't find another therapist, I will still stop calling you after five months. Um, you know, you lay it all out there because the risk there that some people do, some therapists, because they're, they have savior complexes and they don't understand the risks, is they will say, well, I don't want to just leave this client out on a lurch and they terminate and then they're like, ah, oh, you know what? I feel like I, st- I want to know how my client's doing. And then they check in over the phone and the, the therapist is reassured, oh, um, my client is doing okay. And I want to be there for my client. So what will happen for some, for some people is the client won't find another therapist or the new therapist isn't very good or whatever. And the client still wants that phone contact with their previous therapist. And the client won't let go of that. And now you have a situation where the therapist is like, okay, it's two years later. I, I can't continue talking with this client on the phone for once a month because that's not proper treatment and I'm not getting paid for it. And frankly, I feel like I'm, you know, sort of volunteering my time for nothing here. Um, I need to stop doing this. And plus it's a lawsuit waiting to happen. And so I'm just going to stop doing it. Again, I don't know with this anonymous patron if her and her clinician had some sort of agreement uh, that they followed. But a lot of therapists, they just leave it open-ended. Well, you know, we'll check in once a month over phone. You got to lock that down in terms of, okay, at what point do you, do you stop that? Um, and why? So uh, now with this, again, with this patron, things worked out well. Again, I'm guessing because the patron has enough ego strength, has enough secure attachments growing up that her transferences aren't that severe. And so she quickly found out of the therapist and was able to trans- transition to that, to that new person and didn't have that much of a complicated experience emotionally with the transference, counter-transference dynamic between her and her, her, and her therapist. But so there's, a, there's, so there's issues here, but I also wanted to tell this story to give a success story to the string of of uh, problematic stories we've heard previous. That's why I saved this one for last. Cause I was like, I want to leave people on a good note to say like, you know, therapy can go well. And when you do it right, it, it, it sounds like this patron had this really warm, wonderful experience, even though it had this complicated chapter that involved her having romantic and sexual feelings for her therapist. And the therapist reacted perfectly for her and everything worked out. All right. Well, I suspect this is not the last time I'm going to be talking about this. So if you want to share your story, uh, the first place I recommend you go is to the Facebook closed group therapists or clients harmed by therapy. That's what it's called. Clients harmed by therapy. Maybe just do a search by that, or you can go to our Facebook page. And I know some of you don't do Facebook, but it's really the only venue that is um, conducive to the sort of communication that I want to have with the listeners. You know, some people are like, I only do Instagram or I only do Twitter or something. Uh, Twitter and Instagram do not lend themselves to the sort of communication that I want to have with the listeners. Uh, Patreon kind of does, but a lot of people don't use Patreon or 
they don't have the app. Um, we have, I don't know, thousands of people on Facebook. And so, um, and whenever I post things, there are a, there's a lot of people paying attention, shall we say. Sometimes I ask questions. Some, we do our Tuesday Tougher Bluff game. I'm starting to, I'm, I'm going to do a poll every Thursday morning and then talk about it during the live show. That's another thing. Every Thursday at 2 o'clock Seattle time, I do a YouTube live thing, sometimes by myself, sometimes with Umberto, and I, we do a Q&A. And so uh, some of you listening do not know that we have a whole YouTube kind of situation. <laughs> so, um, and I do a lot of those announcements on Facebook. Now, for some of you, you, ought, you know about this, but um, so I, we have some listeners saying, okay, fine, I created a Facebook account just so I could participate in the Facebook page. And I think that's, we also do Discord if you want to join our Discord channel. <laughs> There's just a lot of things to do. Um, also, I want to remind people, if you haven't reviewed us on iTunes, please do that. Um, you don't have to have iTunes. You can go, you can, you, you can, I think you can review us through your web, through web pages and stuff. But anyway, particularly if you're an iPhone user, if you could review us on iTunes, that would be really great. Um, cause I, I feel like it's important to just have that information on iTunes. I don't know. Um, Tell your friends about the podcast. Uh, and again, just to summarize this whole thing, this whole, I don't know how long I've been talking, um, but uh, this is complicated. I hope that people realize that. There are general principles that will provide the best therapy possible for one's clients. And when you understand those principles and when you understand when you need to consult, as a clinician, you can be a wonderful, authentic you know, sometimes self-disclosing, warm, real therapist for your clients. But you got to understand the principles. And when your life starts to go down the tubes, you got to ramp up your consultation and your, and your P's and Q's watching. Because if you don't, you're not only going to harm your clients, which is awful, but you could lose your license. You could even be sued. You could, I don't know, maybe even go to prison under some circumstances. It's very important that we as clinicians, um, you know, we enter this field because we wanted to help people. We didn't enter this field because we wanted to harm people, right? Well, that's why our ethical codes are there. Our ethical codes are there so that we won't harm people. The ethical codes are not there just to, you know, give rules to follow. They're there for a reason. And experts understand how to interpret those ethical codes, how to wisely navigate them and apply them. And I hope that this episode provides some grist for the mill there. Uh, if you want to email us, the best way is to go to the website, use the contact us page. That's where it asks all the appropriate questions. I always love it when people go to the website and fill out that form. Uh, and please take care of yourself because you deserve it. 